you for the love at the beginning of the service. I did feel it. Although you obviously don't love me enough to sit at the front. Like most churches. Don't panic. Most churches, the front rows are empty. Um, but it's great to be here. I really do appreciate it. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt. And I really do love this church. Um, I've been in, involved in and around it for a long time. But I'm not a member of this church. I, I'm not a regular attender. And thus, as I look out, I, I don't know if you're a regular attender or not. I, I don't know if you'd call yourself a Christian. I don't know if you're here just because somebody dragged you along. I don't know if you're here because your parents bribed you and said you could go out on Friday night if you come to church on Sunday. Believe you me, that happens more than you know. Um, I, I don't know if you're here as a partner, as a husband or a wife of somebody and um, you, they believe and you don't, but you're here to support them, which is a good thing. So I thank you if you're in that position. Uh, there's so much I don't know about you. Um, so before I start, I want to put a bit of a clear disclaimer out, really. If you are in that sort of position, if, you're, if you don't call yourself a Christian yet, then I suppose in some ways you get a free pass this morning. But you're really welcome. We love the fact that you are here. And um, if you're watching over somebody's shoulder online later in the week, this counts for you too. Because for these couple of minutes, I, I want to talk exclusively to you for a bit before you sit back smugly and I talk to the rest of the church. hope that's okay. Because you're in this church vision series, really. And uh, this is a series about what we're about as church. What's our purpose? And so if you're visiting or if you're listening in, that's good. Because you can think, is this a place? Is this, are these a people? I want to be a part of. But at this point in the series, we're talking about looking out. Now, of course, all churches should be outward looking. It's actually more easy than you think to fall into the trap of becoming inward looking and thinking just about ourselves. But ultimately, as a church, we're here to benefit the non-members, really. Uh, and our existence as church isn't just about social care. It's not just about food banks and compassion, whilst those things are really important. Those things stem from what we believe. And as a church, we believe in God. We believe God is real. We believe he's a creator God. We don't believe this stuff happened by chance. And we, and we believe that God loves us, all of us, and you too. And we believe that that God is ultimately knowable. And he's knowable primarily through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who was born as a real baby and grew up and lived a life worth modelling. But more than that, he died on a cross and rose again. And we believe he's coming back one day. And we believe as a church in the Holy Spirit, a, a friend, a helper, a companion, who empowers us to live more and more like Jesus. And as a church, we want to share that belief. And so this series is really a series about how we do that. How we share that message with people who don't yet believe. And you might be in that camp. And I want to hold my hand up and say, sometimes as church, 
as individual Christians, in our desperation to share what we believe, sometimes we mess it up. Sometimes we come in too hard. Sometimes we use language and words that are confusing or even off-putting. Sometimes we've shared inappropriately at the wrong time and in the wrong place. Know that actually in our heart, sharing what we believe can sometimes feel awkward for us too, if we're honest. Sometimes it can feel scary and frightening, not because we don't believe what we want to share, but because we know that what we believe is countercultural. It's different from what most of the world believes and so puts us at odds with the society around us at times. So this, this morning, I, I want to share five ways that we as, a, as Christians can share our faith in perhaps a more authentic way. And if you are one of those non-believers listening in, we'd love you to keep listening in because we want to hear from you. We want to hear, are these the five best ways to share our faith? And if they're not, come and help us understand a, a better way to do it. Uh, but, but before I launch into those five ways, I want to share a couple of things. Um, this might seem inappropriate in and around Corona virus, but how many people here have ever caught a virus? You're allowed to put your hands up, right? I'm hoping most people have got their hand up. The rest of you, you're too bored even to put your hand up right now. That's fine. Of course, we've all caught viruses. And they come in different forms, don't they? The common cold, chicken pox, measles, right up to sort of life-threatening rabies and HIV and corona, I suppose. You know, catching a virus, once we've caught a virus, it makes us infectious. And when we're contagious and infectious, we can pass that on to others. Now, just like the effects of a virus, the news that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead spread like a virus. It spread like wildfire. 2,000 years ago, it spread rapidly and caused radical change in people's lives, like a virus does. Honestly, to begin with, it was probably 11 or 12 close disciples, a few sort of women who were hanging around the group. They caught it first, and then they shared it with Pretty quickly, they shared it with maybe 20, 30, 40 others in a closer, larger group. And then maybe there were another 50 or so in the wider group who caught it pretty quickly. And, and maybe 100 or 150 people initially believed. And then the message of Christianity spread. They didn't have social media to do it. It was word of mouth that spread this. And the Christian faith is meant to be viral. It's meant to be something that is spread almost contagiously, naturally. It's not meant to be institutional. The problem is sometimes we've made it institutional to be contained within the church. I'm hoping if you are a believer here, I'm hoping I don't need to convince you of the need to share our faith. In fact, if I need to convince you that much, then I'm not sure you've really caught what Christianity is about. Because it, once you understand what Jesus has done for you, you want to share it. It may be difficult to do, but you want to work out a way to do it. As Matt said a couple of weeks ago when he was speaking, it's just one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. 
And we're all called to be witnesses of what Christ has done for us. This is important. I don't think we're all meant to be called, we're not all called to be evangelists with a capital E. Um, I, I, I differentiate between witnessing and evangelism. Evangelism with a capital E to be an evangelist. God seems to gift in a, in a dramatic, special, miraculous way. You, you know when you've met somebody with the gift of evangelism. They sort of walk into a chip shop and 20 people become Christians. I, I genuinely, I was in a youth group and I had a lad like this in my youth group. He said, one day he said, Matt, I need to meet with you. When one of your young people comes to you as a youth worker and says, I want to meet with you, you're like, right, this is either going to be about porn or money or relationships. And and he said, Matt, I think I've accidentally started a church. (laughs) And I was like, what? And basically, he was just an evangelist. And so many people were coming to Christ. He'd got 25 people that met with him every week. To, to study the Bible and they became Christians and he had kind of started a church and I had to help him walk through that as a 60 year old lad um, I, what I'm talking about is, is not that gift of evangelism I'm talking about the task that we all have to be witnesses it's like being in court don't know if you've ever been in court but you're, you're called as a witness to a crime or an event your task is to share exactly what has happened to you Nothing more, nothing less. Which leads me to my first point, I suppose, which is this. I think? No? No, we haven't got any. Okay. Um, Have you been infected yourself? You Good, good. You can't pass on a virus you don't have. This headset's falling off my ears. Sorry, I'll try one more bed, and if not... I'll just leave it. There you go. Um, you can't pass on a virus you haven't got yourself. It's impossible. You can't be a witness for Christ if you've not already met with him. If Jesus hasn't already met with you and changed you, you can't be a witness for him. And I suppose the second thing I want to share is, uh, are you in isolation? Because... We know that's what happens with viruses, right? If you go to a hospital with a virus, the first thing they do is put you in isolation so that you can't share it with anyone else. You know, hermits, hermits never get viruses because they don't meet people. They never interact with people. And if you want to avoid sharing your faith, don't meet anyone. Or better still, only mix and socialise with those who've already got the virus. That's the best way to do it. If you don't ever want to have to share your faith, just mix with those who already know Jesus. That way you've got nothing to pass on. And just think about yourselves for a second. Are you in Christian isolation? Do you only have Christian friends and only socialise with other Christians? Do you only go to church activities and church socials? Do you only listen to Christian music and only attend Christian meetings and only make Christian friends in order to stay holy. It sounds spiritual, but you know that's what exactly what the Pharisees did. And that was the opposite of how Jesus wanted us to live. More, more about that in a moment. But I don't know if this quote I don't know if this quote is true. But I read it that after being a Christian for two years, the average believer doesn't have a single significant relationship with a non-believer. Is that true for you? I mean, that's scary. 
but that's a significant relationship. It's not Facebook friend. It's not somebody you might say hi to on the street. It's like, you know, their birthday. You go out with them. You, 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 you know their favourite football team. You go on holiday with them. They can walk in your house. Do you know two or three people like that? Sorry? <laughs> Good. <laughs> well, I, I think we should. We should all have people that we could do that with. And, and can I dare to suggest that if you haven't, forget about being equipped for mission. Forget about learning 101 ways to witness. Forget about attending 101 church meetings. Start making some friends outside of isolation. Because we need to have people who we can share our faith with. And in my experience, young people are the best at this. The best at keeping their unchurched friends. The problem is, we as Christian parents are often so scared, we, we sort of pull them away from those friends because they're not a good influence. Forgetting that the people that Jesus had around him were not a good influence at all. So, so in, in the sort of next 15 minutes or so, I, w- I want to share five ways. And I think every single person in this room could fit into at least one of these categories. I'm not saying these are the only five ways. In fact, as the series goes on, you're going to learn about a load more. But these are just five ways. And, and as I go through them, I want you to try and spot yourself in one of them. I'd love it that at the end of this morning, you've got at least one way that you tentatively might be able to say, God might use me in that way. Try and spot yourself in it. The first is this sort of uh, intellectual sense or a discussional sense. And it comes from this passage. I don't know. It comes from a passage that's in the book of Acts. I'm not going to read every passage to you. If you're taking notes or want to take a photo with your phone, you can. Um, but it comes from this passage in Acts chapter 17. You see, Paul, is, who's in this passage, was an intellectual guy, highly educated. And it seems like he had the gift of evangelism, actually, with a capital E. He presented well-reasoned arguments to philosophers in Athens. Often, I picture him leaning on this statue. There was a statue, actually, to the unknown god. It's like they wanted to encompass everybody, every god at that moment, even the unknown ones. And Paul says, I can introduce you to the unknown god. And what's interesting, as you read through that passage there in Acts, as you read through it, he he gives a logical case for Jesus. He answers questions. He challenges assumptions. You know, some people we meet may ask us difficult questions to make us feel stupid. But some ask us questions because they need to hear an answer to move on a step in their quest for God. Just as a little example to you, I used to run a youth work and one of the events we did, I've probably spoken about it before, was girls only shopping. And once a year, the first Saturday in December, we used to head to Blue Water and I used to only take the girls shopping. It wasn't a sexist thing. None of the boys wanted to. They never thought about their Christmas shop until like the 24th of December. But I used to take this, the, the girls from the youth group. They brought their friends. We used to take a couple of minibuses down to Blue Water. We got there at 8 o'clock in the morning. 8 till 6. It was hardcore shopping. And the girls used to go out shopping. And, and I used to sit in the coffee shop and read a book. 
and they used to come back and dump their shopping with me and say hi and then run off and do some more shopping. I mean, it looked weird. It looked like I was either a modern-day fagin sending out all my, all my kids to do my stealing, or it looked like I was some kind of weird guy with all these girls. I mean, it's... Anyway, um, but I'm in this coffee shop for, like, eight hours, and I'm sitting there with my laptop watching a movie. And at the corner of my eye, uh, this guy comes over and says, can I sit at your table? It was quite busy in the coffee shop. Can I sit at your table? I said, yeah, sure. And then... He got his book out of his bag to read, and it was The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. And I thought, I just wanted to watch a movie, right? But I thought, now I've got, got to say something. And so he was reading for a bit, and, and I just took my headphones off, and I said, hey, that looks like an interesting book. And he said, yeah. And I said, I've read it too. Do you want to chat about it? And he was like, yeah, there's some stuff I don't understand. So we start talking. And as we're talking, a guy from two tables over, who's obviously a bored boyfriend waiting for his girlfriend to come back after shopping, he, he walked over, he said, your conversation sounds really interesting, can I join in? I was like, yeah, sure. And then another guy off another table, and there were four of us by the end of it, round this table talking about the God Delusion book. And I was able to share some of the holes I thought I saw in Richard Dawkins' theory and some of the things I thought were really great. And we ended up talking about faith for about two or three hours. Um, I, I, I'm not saying they all became Christians, but maybe it was another step on their walk to faith. You know, does that sort God again. It just keeps disappearing. It, does that sort of idea appeal to you? Now, the ca- characteristics of somebody who that might appeal to is that you might be inquisitive, you might be analytical, you might be logical, you might be a bit of a reader, you might be a little bit confident. The cautions we have, people like me, is we need to be aware of being argumentative or the desire to show that we're right and you're wrong. But that idea might appeal to some of you here. There's another another one. I don't quite know where I'm meant to be pointing, and I don't know if it's... There we go. Do you want to do it? If, if you're a star. Maybe, I'm, maybe I've got it wrong. Anyway, testimonial. Thank, I'll leave it to you, Ben. You can, you can do it. He's a star. This testimonial or telling my story sort of approach. There are some of you here who are storytellers among you. This story, just roll it on a bit, Ben. There we go. This is the blind man in John chapter 8. Basically, he meets Jesus and Jesus heals him. What I love about this story is when you read it, is actually people start questioning him. They start going, how, what, what was Jesus doing? And in the end, the blind man goes, whoa, hold on. This is Matt Levitt paraphrase of the Bible, right? He says, oh, I don't know. All I know is I was blind, but now I can see. It's like he says, I don't know what happened in the middle. I don't know what Jesus did. But what I do know is I was here and now I'm here. And you could do that too. You can tell those stories. Be careful, though, that your testimony isn't always of what God did 20 years ago. Or looking out there without being rude, what God did 50 years ago. What's God doing in your life now? What did he do last week in your life? You know, the great thing is no one can deny you your story. No, no, nobody can say, mm, that's not true. You can go, no, I was blind, but now I see. I'm forever going into lessons in schools and 
doing this sort of guerrilla Christian where they ask all these difficult questions to me. And, you know, we often have a bit of a laugh and conversations and, oh, yeah, you know, that sort of stuff. But then always what will happen is one of them will go, well, how did you become a Christian then? And it goes quiet. They want to hear your story. And people want to hear your story too. It doesn't have to be dramatic. It doesn't have to be that you were a drug-using, occult-leading, Satanist, da-da-da. Unless that is your story, then share it. It might just be a simple story of somebody who grew up in Suffolk and came to know Jesus. That idea might really appeal to some of you. Now, in this, if we could have the slide back up, I don't know, yeah. In this, you know, there are some characteristics. You're a clear, simple communicator relating your experience to theirs. But be careful. Don't be so anxious to share your story that you don't actually listen to theirs. A third way of doing this Uh, is this kind of hospitality relational way. I think that's the next one coming up, if we can. That is is a hospitality or a life relational way. If we can move on to the next slide. There's this story of Matthew. You'll know this. Matthew or Levi, the tax collector. He met Jesus and his life was turned around. But that's not primarily the story. The story is how he brought others to Jesus. Matthew was not a well-liked man. He was a Jew, and he was a Jew who was working for the Romans. (laughs) He was viewed as a traitor. And not only was he working for the Romans, he was also fleecing his own people out of money, basically overtaxing them and taking off the, the top end. You know, that's why the Bible refers to loathed people groups as tax collectors and sinners, right? He was not a liked man. But Matthew heard the teaching of Jesus. He saw some of the miracles. He listened to all the talk. And then Jesus walked over to him and said, follow me. And that was powerful enough for Matthew to give up and follow him. But I love the next bit of the story because you see it's not really about Matthew. It's about Matthew's friends who were tax collectors and sinners. Who were prostitutes the ordinary kind of despised people of the day. The people that Matthew hung around with, because basically nobody else wanted to hang around with him. Matthew hung around with this group of people. You know the kind of people who parents say, oh, you shouldn't be friends with them. (laughs) It's that kind of people. And Matthew believed in Jesus to change lives. And so what Matthew did was host a party, right? We could all host parties, (laughs) And Matthew hosted this party, invited all his friends, these despised people, and then invited Jesus. That's all he did. Almost sat back and watched what would happen next. (laughs) I mean, it's not a mix I'd go for straight away. This keen, new, rabbi, possible Messiah leader, and then all the despised sinners. Doesn't sound like a great mix. But Matthew knew what he was doing. I mean, if the queen said, oh, sorry, not the queen. If the king said he was coming to your house 
for a dinner party, you'd think very carefully about who you'd invite. Because <laughs> you want people who conduct themselves appropriately, right? You don't want your work colleague who swears like a trooper, or your boss who tells those blue jokes, your neighbour who's got an ASBO. You know, those are the people you don't want to invite. You probably wouldn't invite me. <laughs> you definitely wouldn't invite Ben. You know, and, and, and you think carefully because you want to put on a good impression, right? But Matthew is more concerned about who should be there than who shouldn't be there. And this life transformational moment has happened for Matthew. He's encountered Jesus and he wants his friends to encounter Jesus too. And he throws this dinner party that's probably the best dinner party there's ever been on the planet. And I love the fact that Jesus doesn't think whether he should attend. He doesn't really care about his reputation. He just says, I'm going. I like a good party, says Jesus. Maybe even remembering back to the way he turned water into wine at the last party. I don't know. But Jesus also doesn't think, right, I've got them where I want them. Lock the doors. I'm going to tell them what God really thinks about them and their sinful ways. I'm going to sock it to them about God's judgment and about hell. And I'm not going to let them leave until they've all turned to, to me. <laughs> no, Jesus doesn't say any of that. He just eats with them. And table fellowship was the sign of acceptance. And he ate with the best of them. And I mean, imagine the barriers that were broken down that night, right? This famous healer, this religious rabbi was socialising with me. He's listening to my story. And he's telling his own story and he's eating with us. Jesus passed the bread to me. They weren't being judged, they weren't being looked down on, they weren't being patronised, they weren't being targeted. They were being loved and accepted. And maybe, as a result of that party... Some of those people were nudged a little bit closer to God because of Jesus' understanding and openness. We could host 101 different parties if we wanted. Christmas drinks parties, cheese and wine parties, christening dedication parties, wedding parties, anniversary parties, dinner parties, murder mystery parties, body shop parties, Tupperware parties, closure ears and summers parties, card parties, Eurovision song contest parties, wig parties, barbecue. I mean, the list is endless. I mean, we, we could become known for being the church who loves to party. I, you know, I mean... It'd probably make the news if, if you as a church decided to cancel your home group Bible studies for a year and just have parties instead. The idea isn't to, <laughs> isn't to have talks. I'll never be invited back to speak again. Will I? It's not to have a talk. It's not to have a testimony necessary. It's not to have somebody standing at the front and giving a religious talk. No, it's, it's just a chance to eat together. And make sure we do, not all the Christians in one room and all the non-Christians in another. Listen to people and then maybe act on any prompts that God gives you. Some of you here, that's touched your heart and you thought, I could do that. The fourth way, the fourth possible way you could do this is by serving. I think that will come up the next one. Hot, uh, uh, 
no, I've got that wrong. Do you want to move on? This might be my slides. Yeah, this was it. Sorry, I've, I've obviously got it slightly wrong on the slide. Serving. The, the woman called Dorcas in the book of Acts, we don't know much about her, but what is said about her is that she was always doing good and helping the poor. That's what we learned about her. One of the churches I used to go to, the way their food bank started was because I walked into a co-op and uh, I bumped into a woman there who was crying. And I said, are you all right? And she said, I just can't decide. Do I buy porridge to feed my kids for breakfast in the morning or do I buy washing powder to clean their school clothes? And I thought, I don't want anyone to be in that position. So we decided we were going to try and sort that out as a church. And, and we enabled her to get way more than porridge and, and, so, and washing powder. And it started a food bank for that area. Now, you as a church are great. You are great at serving your community. I know you are. But somehow we have to work out how words and works come together. And that's not easy. Because our default is we must have a sermon, or our default is we must give out a tract. How we work out words and works to come together is really hard. Really hard. But Dorcas was always doing good and helping the poor. If you are other-centred, if you're practical in nature, if you're humble, if you're servant-hearted, this is how you can share the faith. But... Words as well as actions are important. Don't forever just be doing the action without any words, but don't launch in with the words without the actions. And learning how those two things can come together appropriately is perhaps the difficult challenge of this. And the last way is sort of an invitational way. You know, uh, <coughs> would you like to come too? Thank you. And if you look at the uh, woman who came to the well in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, she was a woman with a history and a past. She felt less than. She felt shame. Yet within her, there was actually an astuteness. There was a, a, a rebellious spirit which wasn't prepared to accept just being treated like that. So actually, when you read the story, she started questioning Jesus and trying to work out what this meant. But after she met Jesus at the well, it says she went into the town and then brought a load of people back to meet with Jesus, to hear for themselves. Now, interestingly, this idea presupposes that you've got something to invite them back to. And I'm not sure that our church services, and I don't just mean this church, I mean all churches, I'm not sure our church services are the ideal thing to bring people back to to begin with. Because most people in our society now are pre-Christian. It's not that they've decided against Christianity. And I'm talking specifically about younger people and their families. It's not that they've decided against Christianity. It's that they don't know enough to, to be able to decide against him. They're not post-Christian. They've not done the Christian thing. They're pre-Christian. They don't, they don't understand. They don't understand what Jesus is. They don't understand what the Bible is. 
They don't even understand why, why the Bible is relevant. They, they don't know what worship is. We use words and languages in our services, which I'm not even sure most Christians understand, <laughs> let alone those that haven't been brought up in a faith. Just a few examples, and I may have shared these before. I took a young person to church, and at the end of the service, I said to them, this was only four or five years ago, I said to them, why didn't you take communion? And they said, oh, we didn't pay. And that's because we'd sent the offering round beforehand. And because nobody had said what the offering was about, they then connected the offering to the communion which came next. Now, there's something quite deep theological about saying, oh, I didn't pay when it comes to communion. Because we didn't explain what was happening. I remember uh, taking another young person to church, and at the end of it, I said, what did you think? And this girl, she said, what was that man doing? And pointed over at our pastor. And our pastor had been clapping away like this in worship. And this girl said, he looks like my granddad, and my granddad's got special needs. Because we hadn't explained what happens in worship and the the desire to use our bodies in worship, so she just thought he was weird. I took my sister, my sister's 43, I took my sister, we were driving through our hometown, and my sister just suddenly said, oh, if I was ever going to go to church, she doesn't go to church, if I was ever going to go to church, I'd go to that one. And I said to her, why would you go to that one? And she went, well, that one's free, because it was Amersham Free Church. You don't have to pay to go to that one. Do you see how far removed most of our society is from our services? So I'm not saying we're doing our services wrong, but what I am saying is maybe inviting non-Christians to join us in our services as a first step possibly isn't the best thing we could do. Are we putting on events, opportunities, parties that people could begin to get to know us and the Christian message before they join us in a service. Andrew, the, the Apostle Andrew, was a great example of the invitational approach. He met Jesus, and then he went to get his brother and dragged his brother along, and his brother was Simon Peter, and the rest of that is history, I guess. You know, actually, the invitational approach, rightly done. Can, can be really powerful. Um, just as I end, uh, just one, one little more story, and again, I may have shared this before, but this kind of includes the extra, the possibility of God stepping in. And when we step out for God and, and want to witness for him, we're doing it with an open heart, and you never know what God might do. It was a long time ago, probably... 10 years ago now, 15 years ago, long story short, I was in Tesco's on Christmas Eve, which is a place you don't want to be on Christmas Eve. And it, I was fighting around there, and, and eventually I got in a queue, and I got to the front of that queue, and it closed down, you know, and I was getting more and more frustrated, and I joined another queue, and it was moving so slowly. And, uh, I was getting mad and mad. As I'm in the queue on Christmas Eve, and I'm frustrated and mad, there's a voice from the guy behind me who goes, they should kill the guy that invented Christmas. And it went silent. And I went, I think you'll find they did. 
And something miraculous happened in that moment. I can't explain what happened. All I know is God did something. And it was like time stopped in that queue. Around us, all the beeps were happening, all the shouts, all the da-da-da. In this queue, everything stopped. The conveyor belt stopped. The girl on the till, she, she must have been 16. She took this deep breath in and dead, the tears just started falling. She said, I've been on shift here since six o'clock this morning. She said, I haven't been able to move from this seat. This was mid-afternoon. She said, I've been to the toilet, I haven't had a drink. She said, I just need to know something about God. And I was able in that moment, in that queue, to share the Christmas story in as simple a way as I could. And there were about this guy behind me was listening, the woman behind him. And it was like time had stopped. That's all I can say. The light stopped flashing above our... And I shared this story. And then I reached into my pocket, invitational style, and I pulled out of my pocket. And I had a crumpled leaflet from our church event that was happening the, the next morning, the Christmas day. And I said, look, I said, if you're interested, if you're awake... I said, you might want to come and hear this story again. And um, uh, as I did that, as I handed over this flyer to this girl, the conveyor belt started, the lights started flashing, and the noise started up again, and we carried on. I don't know what God was doing that morning, and I don't know what happened to that girl. All I do know is that with a witnessing spirit and openness, God decided to step in in that moment. Our time is up this morning, but just as I end, there's five different ways that you perhaps could be used not even to witness. If that's too scary, maybe even just to nudge somebody one step further. There are loads more ways. I know somebody who became a Christian through Facebook because he was talking with somebody he met online and this guy happened to be a youth worker in America. And this youth worker in America said... Is there a church near you? And this guy said, well, there's one at the end of our road. And so he Googled our church to check we were all right and then emailed me as a youth pastor. I know people that have come to know Jesus through 101 different ways. But those are five ways that perhaps you could start and think about whether you're young or, ever, or whether you're old. But as I close, have you ever thought how much your life might change if you start sharing your faith? There's this verse in Philemon, the book we never read in the New Testament. There's this verse that says, I pray you may be active in sharing the faith so that you may fully understand every blessing we have in Christ. It seems like we can only fully understand every blessing we have in Christ when we actually share him. So when you step out, when you decide you're going to witness, you never know, you might actually learn to have a deeper relationship with Christ too. I'm not even asking you to be I'm not asking you to be an evangelist. I'm not even asking you to be a witness yet. But could you be a nudger? You know, if I put a balloon at that side of the room and told you to hit it from there to there, you'd never make it. But if it nudged from there to there and there to there and there to there, 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 you'd make it to this side of the room. 
So maybe, as I close, and as you leave, maybe you can think of yourself as a nudger. Somebody you can nudge somebody on just one little step. And as you go on the series, you're going to learn a load more ways. But I hope that I've just encouraged you as we start.